This edition of The Standard is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharma Dean Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. ES Audio. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm David Marsland, and this is The Leader. Find pretty much any bar in London, and I doubt you'd struggle to find anyone not speaking their mind on just about anything. Just ask the Prime Minister. Prime Minister, oh, the irony that you're raising alcohol duty today as you're putting a pint. Rishi Sunak was heckled by publican Rudy Kaiser as the PM himself poured a pint at a beer festival this week. Wouldn't get away with that in some other countries. And yet, how free is speech in today's Britain? On the one hand, you can look at people like JK Rowling and the attacks on her for her prominent gender-critical views, then see sales of Harry Potter books rising by 15% this year and say cancel culture doesn't exist. Those death threats she got, though, they were real. Also, Nigel Farage's Coots account was closed with his political views cited in an internal document. Should a bank really be able to shut down a client because the institution doesn't like their views? The issue is complicated, and that's why it should be debated. The Evening Standard, a newspaper that's had a lot of opinions in the last 200 years, has begun a major inquiry into where free speech stands. Our proprietor, Lord Lebedev's, kicked things off with an opinion piece in the newspaper, also available at standard.co.uk, and there will be many more writers to come. Some you may not agree with. But does that mean we shouldn't run their views? One of those contributors coming up will be Ruth Anderson, the CEO of Index on Censorship, which campaigns for free expression around the world. If you count down the rankings in its league table of countries, you'll get to 50 before you see the UK, which is classed as partially open, behind countries like Australia, Lithuania and Sweden, but ahead of closed ones like Eritrea, North Korea and Yemen. She's with me now. Ruth, when you're looking at countries like North Korea... The UK is very far from having a totalitarian regime. Are threats to free speech 
really a big issue here. We are so lucky to live in a democracy. We are so lucky to live in the UK. And every day with a decision that I will be working with or one of my team will be working with somewhere else, I am reminded of how lucky I am to have been born in the UK. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be always alert to making sure that we are protecting our own rights. We can only criticise other nations for how they treat their um, their citizens if we are confident that we have the highest standards with regards to our own human rights. And while we have extraordinary access to information, and we of course live in a free society, last year a third of librarians were asked to remove a book from their shelves in, in the UK, according to a recent survey. We've seen books queried about gender and identity. We've seen in America 1,648 books were subject to book bannings in the last academic year. And they range from Margaret Atwood and Her Handmaid's Tale to the graphic novel Mouse to Kite Runner. These are extraordinary important books. And for me, horrendously, Judy Bloom, who was the author of My Childhood, she wrote her books in 1975 and they are still being banned in America. America that has the legal First Amendment right to freedom of speech. But the Republicans in America and places like Florida would say that these books are not banned. They're still available. You can go and buy them in shops. You can look at them online. They're just not available in educational settings. Is there a difference there? I would argue that universities are cathedrals to learning. And the first step for that are libraries, because that's access to knowledge. We live in an age of the internet. We live in the age of as much information as we can get. Libraries help curate that information. They're incredibly important for our learning. And actually, the First Amendment right is about how you have access to information. Who can say what? Only for the government. So I would argue that's a step too far for Republicans too. Is that something that we could see in the UK? I really hope not. I think what we've seen is some of the, in my opinion, ridiculously OTT conversations about statues and some of our colonial history. And so you can see, I think that everything is about context. So don't remove a statue, but contextualise why that statue would not be put up today and explain why that person, uh, that person's link to slavery or to our empire was. I think that all of this is about context. Otherwise, you end up removing music and you end up removing key words and phrases and you miss the, uh, the historical context for some of the stuff that we read explain why that isn't acceptable in today's society but that demonstrates how far we've come as a society the fact that it's no longer acceptable so we've got to be really careful so can we can i see it happening here in a politically divided country of course we could see it happen here. and then of course it gets very complicated talking about removing words we saw that with Raoul Dahl recently when there were rewrites of those words a lot of people said this isn't offensive but also you know this is the words that the author wrote can we really take those out and call it the same book should we have these conversations though I think we should have national conversations I don't think it should be happening to us if we collectively agree that the original Roald Dahl books should only be in institutes, in universities, for example, so that they can be studied as a historical text, but there are newer versions of the text. If that's where we decide as a society we'd like to end up, that's a conversation we should have as a society. One of the issues that I think is missing always from this is that the conversations about speech are happening to people, not with people. 
that leads to bad everything, usually bad politics, but that definitely leads to people being resentful about what's happening to them. And all you've got, and there are better ways and means of doing it than sensitivity writers. And the other side of this is, okay, everyone has a right to speak. Do I have to listen to you? If if you know if you said Judy Bloom is the greatest author of all time and threw her book at me, would I have to read it? I think that that is the most important question right at the moment. I you have the right to speak, but do you have the right to be heard? Well, of course you don't. You've never had the right to be heard. And if we consider social media, and especially things like pylons, and when it got really, you know, when it's got really, really unpleasant, and you're in the middle of a social media storm, that is the equivalent of lots of people doing letters to you, which you never had to read because it didn't invade your personal space. The problem is social media is on our phones, and therefore they're in our pocket. We have allowed ourselves to think that by writing something online means that the other person has to see it. Of course they don't. It's why the mute button is so brilliant on social media. People keep shouting at me. I don't need to listen to them. But it's making sure that we know which tools to use. And then it's also about making sure that we understand the algorithms that are actually running some of our lives online. Because there is a there was this ridiculous situation on one of the social media pl- platforms where they delisted the videos of disabled people. And it was to stop abuse happening to those people. It was to stop people making fun of them. It was to stop abuse happening. What happened was that none of those videos were being seen by anybody because they'd been delisted by the algorithm. So the social media companies thought they'd done a good thing, but actually they've removed people's access to a space. And I just think we've got to be really careful about how we... We can't sanitise the internet because you can't sanitise the world. So there's got to be a space, there's got to be compromise as we work our way through what freedom of expression, the right to be heard and social media platforms really mean. For a technology that can't, that we need to remember is very, very new. It may feel like it's a core part of our lives, but newspapers have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and the internet's been around for 30. Right, let's go to the ads now. We'll have more from Ruth after the break. If you hit your follow button on your podcast provider, you'll get the Leader Podcast delivered to you at 4pm every day. We even do a weekend edition. Be up to date with the biggest, most important news, analysis and opinion every day at 4pm. See you after these. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Should free speech be absolute? I think if we lived in an ideal world, of course it should be. But, there is a big but, free speech is not without consequence. And we live in a society where we have to think about the consequences. And if you think about hate speech and threats and violence, then those are with consequence. And so for me, on a personal level, I'm not an absolutist. I think free speech is an incredibly important, the most important democratic value that we have. But therefore, it should be protected and cherished and not abused. And abusing takes it to the point of hate speech, 
So free speech within the confines of the law. Yeah, where is the? I was going to ask, where does that stop? Then, what is the line? When does it step over from being free speech and 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 you know vigorous opinion into hate speech? So I was um, a Jewish member of Parliament. Banter meant that I, I was absolutely right to be questioned on my voting record, on my views, on my comments, on the issues I promoted. And to be attacked for them where people disagreed with me. So I can happily tolerate, and I think there is an element of toleration to this, but tolerate everyone else's views up to and um, including the point of complete and utter disagreement until it becomes threats of violence. So it's when it crosses over, when it either becomes about my personal identity, so in that case when I was Jewish, or it becomes threatening um, threatening me with violence and violence, whether that was sexual violence or the end of my life level of violence, then it's got to be managed. And do you think, from your experience, the things that people have come into your organisation with, is that actually rising? Has that changed? I think there's lots of different issues around our current perceptions of free speech and how much we need to protect it and personally i prefer the phrase freedom of expression because it's not just about speech anymore it's about our creativity it's about how we engage what we see in a world of social media in a world of of art graffiti artists or graphic artists like the world is more than just how we speak to each other and index on censorship it has a wonderful story we were set up 50 years ago and we were set up as an entity to promote the concept of freedom of expression as a democratic value. Um, so we worked with people behind the Iron Curtain who were using their words as dissidents, how brave and inspiring those people were and continue to be under the age of Putin as dissidents. So we work with people in Hong Kong, we work with people in Afghanistan, in Russia, in parts of South America where they don't have the same freedoms that we have. Um, so they have a different view about freedom of expression than we might have in the UK because we take it for granted. And so there is a difference between the absolute cessation and control of your speech, which is what's happening in North Korea, in Saudi, in you know, lots of places around the world, versus the conversations we're having around cancel culture and woke and the concepts of management of speech and and the protection of free speech. Those are different issues. And self-censorship, which is the core element of this. Let's talk about that, actually, because self-censorship, that's where people might want to express an opinion but fear what the reaction would be. How is that, is that damaging conversation in the country? Look, I think in an age of, of, of um, Twitter pylons, if we're still allowed to call it Twitter and not X pylons, but in an age of social media and immediate response to whatever people say, you can understand why some people don't want to raise their heads above the parapet. You can understand why if you don't know enough about an issue or you're worried, um, not for everybody, for some people they'll give their opinion on everything, but for a lot of people it will discourage engagement. And one of my concerns about that is it also then discourages conversation and learning. Because if you're, I think we've got to a point, especially on some subjects, that you don't want to ask questions because you might be seen to be on one side or the other of a debate. And that in itself is stops our national conversation. It stops learning. It stops enlightenment. And it stops from, I say it as someone who's on the left, it stops a progressive development of society if you can't actually have conversations about what exists and what 
what where issues are. But can we really not have these conversations? You know, I'm thinking of, of, of J.K. Rowling as a good example, a woman who's come out with very strong gender-critical views. There have been attempts to cancel her, and yet sales of Harry Potter have gone up. The biggest selling video game of the year is it from the Harry Potter universe. Does cancel culture actually exist? Cancel culture has always existed. J.K. Rowling, thankfully, is not part of, um, has not been cancelled. Her platform is huge. But her life has changed dramatically because she's chosen to be politically outspoken on an issue. But then there are people on both sides of that discussion around um, gender identity. People that have very strong opinions are talking and talking loudly. On that specific issue, where are the people in the middle who are asking questions? The majority of people who really want to know why gender-neutral toilets might be in existence or what's actually happening to trans people in terms of access to doctors or what does it mean around women's safe spaces or not and might not feel comfortable enough to ask the question or know who to ask the question for fear of what happens next. So that means that information doesn't get spread and maybe leaves a gap for misinformation? I think maybe leaves a good. So if you think about COVID is a really good example, I think probably. We all absolutely rightly, in my opinion, did what the government told us to do. For the majority, the overwhelming majority of people agreed. But we were in such a period of fear that questioning any of it, we were in a we were literally in a na- national pandemic locked in our houses. You can see why or understand why. I mean, I obviously have a, a differing view to them, but you can see why people didn't know who to ask questions of. And if they did ask questions online, that quickly became issues of disinformation. And then where were we filling the holes? One of the reasons why I love the right of freedom of expression is because you can shine a spotlight and you make sure that people aren't pushed to the fringes or to the underground if you engage in a conversation to show where the evidence is. The issue that we have is what should go alongside that in an age of too much information given our access to the internet is the right analytical skills that go alongside it so that you can question the information in front of you and challenge it rightly. And hopefully that means that the majority of the people, as always, end up in the majority. And that's the leader. Head to standard.co.uk for more on our free speech inquiry and all the latest news. The Leader Podcast will be back at 4pm tomorrow.